can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness. I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome, I'm your host Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. So the goal, you see, of indigenous education, as, as was re- reflected in the poem, was to find your face, find your heart, find your foundation in these relationships and responsibilities, concentric relationships and responsibilities, towards the goal of becoming a, a complete human being. I have the great privilege of having this morning the author of Look to the Mountain, An Ecology of Indigenous Education, Dr. Gregory Cayette. Look to the Mountain is a wonderful book that offers um, not just educators, but people in general, a remarkable fresh perspective on the challenges facing education in, the, in contemporary society. Dr. Cayette is a member of the Tewa Peoples from New Mexico. Very privileged to have you on our program. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really uh, very happy and, and uh, very honored uh, to, to have some time to share my thoughts with you. Now, you've uh, written about um, an ecology of indigenous education. Tell us, what inspired you to write this book? What is the hope in writing this book? Primarily, uh, it's a book uh, that is, I guess you might say, a product of both, uh, uh, I would say, creative uh, anger <laughs> would be one way to describe uh, you know, one emotion uh, that went into writing this book. Um, I uh, work uh, at that time uh, at a school called the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, the school uh, basically is a Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, school. It's one of three post-secondary schools, uh, and in this case, the Institute of American Indian Arts uh, is dedicated to using uh, the arts primarily as a foundation for uh, training uh, young aspiring Native people uh, uh, in in the vocation of art uh, in a variety of areas. So it's uh, it, it, it of its very nature was a, a very early on a, a kind of leader in culturally based uh, arts education. So I was a teacher there. I'm also a uh, self taught uh, artist, and uh, during that time I was uh, really uh, the, the school was involved or embroiled as will happen with uh, 
many issues related to its uh, literally its existence and um at that time it was uh, being uh, slated to be closed and we had uh, gone through a major uh, effort uh, through the congress because the school actually is a line item within the uh, federal budget uh, it's it's a federally chartered uh, school uh, one of just a few in the country and uh, we were being slated to be uh, basically erased from the uh, from the budget and uh, and so it was uh, it was a very traumatic time uh, we had come out of that um, they had uh, uh, allowed the school to remain open um, and reorganized it. Uh, it. It had it had to change in a very significant way, from being an indigenous school to being a um, a school that reflected essentially the the Western idea uh, or concept of education. And of course, many of us teaching at the school at that time were very. Um, passionate and committed to the school and to the idea of, of creating an indigenous school around the around uh, indigenous arts. And so we felt that, uh, you know, we had been, um, uh, in a sense, compromised in, in a very significant way uh, with the new legislation. So even though we did remain open and we still, and the institute is still open today and getting lots and lots of money from various sources, uh, it lost something during that time. And so it was a passion that then led me to begin to write, what is the ecology of indigenous education? I had uh, been working on uh, what is called a culturally relevant or culturally based science uh, education curriculum, which I had introduced at the school at that time, uh, which integrated science with art, with the cultural perspectives of the students coming from throughout the United States, you know, to the school. To so based on that, also I had to go into really answering the question, what is indigenous education or what is education for indigenous people? How did we practice this process of education uh, in uh, pre-Columbian times? You know, what was our epistemology, if you will, of education? So that's what led me uh, essentially to um, to explore, to research, and to write the book, uh, look to the mountain. So, so that's kind of uh, you know brief, you know the story of of how I I, I wrote it. Um, uh, let me just finish by saying that the the term "look to the mountain" is actually a uh, it's an English translation of a Tewa metaphor. We're surrounded by um, four sacred mountains here in in New Mexico where I live, and um, uh, in in my village, uh, which is Santa Clara Pueblo, uh, which is one of six. Tewa-speaking pueblos uh, north of Santa Fe, uh, we have various sacred mountains, you know, that, that sort of encompass or sort of uh, bound, you know, our, our our territory. And so elders will sometimes come up, and especially, especially as we're discussing different kinds of, of issues that affect the community as a whole, uh, you know, uh, I remember uh, some elders using the term uh, look to the mountain, you know, which is basically telling the people, look to your history, you know, where you come from, because you, as you climb a mountain, you go through a process of going through the foothills and climbing to the top of the mountain. And then when you're on top of the mountain, you have uh, another uh, perspective, which is your present. And then as you look out from the top of the mountain, you know, to the other mountains and other valleys around you, uh, you have you have a vision of possibilities of where to go next. So it's a 
it's past, present, and future coming together in that act of journeying, you know, to the to the mountain. And so it, it's a way of understanding perspective about what you are discussing or what you're reflecting on. And so I use that metaphor, you know, very uh, specifically to reflect on what is indigenous education, what does that mean, what did that mean to us in the past, what does it mean to us in the present, and what are the possibilities, what is the vision uh, of indigenous education for the future. And so that's basically look to the mountain, and that's the metaphor that I used. That's a beautiful metaphor. I just want to borrow on uh, something you mentioned, and that is that creative anger, because in your book you you speak about mythopoetic, and I want to talk about the myths. You know, there are myths in our society that not only create uh, how we see the world, but how we engage in the world. And one has been that education is a neutral force, um, and it takes that stance in relation to colonization. It takes the stance that colonization is something that happened long ago and uh, it's, um, you know, we're in a post-colonial society now. So I want to speak about from a perspective of the Maya people, the Aymara people, the Ojibwe, Haida, the Tewan people, um, to me it seems that process continues today. I wonder, could you talk about what has been the legacy of education in the colonization process and what stories um, of this uh, sad history must be remembered today? Well, I have to say uh, emphatically that education is not neutral nor has it ever been neutral, especially in terms of, of the way it has been practiced and applied within uh, Western uh, cultural settings. Very definitely education was a tool of uh, colonization and really continues to be that in some ways today. I think that one of the struggles that Native people have as a whole has been, you know, to uh, to, in a sense, um, endure, if you will, uh, Western education, uh, to find ways to, um, to adapt to it uh, without losing themselves. And it's been a very long and tenuous history that Native people have uh, had with education as a whole. And so we're just really, really within this uh, past uh, 50, 60 years, uh, have begun to just very step, very much a step by step process, regain control uh, or at least some control of our education and also of our process of education. So it's been a long journey uh, in, 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 in really just being self determined and, and really applying that concept of self determination. Uh, to education, but uh, yes, definitely uh, education has never been, for Native people at least, neutral. So I think of the stories that, that frame that discussion, though, and, and where are our stories? What are the stories that we must be re- remembering and retelling? Well, in, in the book, Look to the Mountain, I, uh, you know, as, as I researched uh, this question, what is indigenous education? Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, the philosophical term that is used for uh, this process of, of, of learning uh, culturally is, uh, is epistemology, which is a, a fancy philosophical term, but basically it means how do you come to know what you know? How do you come to know what you know? And so you see uh, every cultural, uh, human cultural group has, has had a 
philosophy, a, a vision, if you will, uh, an understanding of how they collectively come to know what they know, which is the epistemology. So, for example, in order to create the kinds of curriculum that I was creating at the Institute at that time, I had to understand, first of all, you know, what, what is the, our own history of Indigenous education? What is our epistemology? Because uh, unless you understand that, you don't really have a truly culturally based, a culturally relevant curriculum that you can begin to, to build from. So as I was looking, you know, really looking and researching all over the world uh, and trying to find some kind of, um, of a handle, if you will, you know, that I could use a story or a case that sort of exemplify what indigenous epistemology was. Uh, I happened on a very old uh, uh, work that was uh, being done in the early 60s uh, by a uh, gentleman whose name is Miguel Leon Portillo. And he worked, uh, I believe, out of the University of uh, Texas, Austin. And uh, he wrote a book uh, uh, in the 1960s called Aztec Thought and Culture. And in that, he was exploring, um, you know, what the Aztecs believed uh, education was. And so there's a poem in there, uh, you know, because uh, he was using uh, basically uh, translations from from Nahuatl to Spanish uh, into English and looking at different kinds of remnants of poems, you know, that had survived the burning of, of the libraries uh, in, in Mexico City at that time. Um, and he found a, a poem that sort of, and he characterized it in this way. He said, uh, you know, there was a professor, you know, in one of the, the colleges, uh, the universities, if you will, of, of the Aztec. And uh, the question was to the students, his, the professor's question to the students was, what is it to be a person of knowledge? And uh, the students, uh, and, and again, all of this is chanted, you see, very much like the Hawaiians and the Maoris, the, the, the discourse was chanted, you know, in, in these ritual poems and ritual prayers. And so the chant was given, what is it to be a person of knowledge? The students go off and come back maybe a few days later, and they, they have a responsal uh, chant uh, that is basically in a poetic form. And that's what these poems that uh, Miguel Leroy Portillo were was studying. And so in the, in the chant, the, for, from the students back to the professor, they said this, uh, first one must find one's uh, face. One must find one's face, which in our terms today means you, you have to have a sense of your identity. Then they said one must find one's heart, which is really, uh, in today's uh, education jargon, the affective domain. We have to, you have to have a sense of... of uh, why you're doing something, but it goes much deeper. Uh, you know, finding a heart is really also about finding your own sense of spirit. And then uh, one must find one's foundation, uh, foundation to stand on, which uh, allows you to most completely reflect your heart and your face. And so foundation in our terms today would be vocation, you know, that kind of work that you would do uh, that would um, allow you, in a sense, to, to be uh, completely expressive of who you are as a person. And then that all of that happened in these contexts of relationships and responsibilities, uh, concentric rings of relationship and responsibility. Uh, first, yourself to yourself, yourself to uh, your family, 
yourself to your clan, yourself to your tribe, yourself to the place from which you come, and then finally yourself to the whole cosmos. And then they said it was uh, towards becoming a complete person, a complete man or woman. So the goal, you see, of indigenous education, as as was re- reflected in the poem, was to find your face, find your heart, find your foundation in these relationships and responsibilities, concentric relationships and responsibilities, towards the goal of becoming a, a complete human being. And so when I found that, I said, this is the essence of uh, indigenous epistemology, you know, because uh, as you will discover as you study this uh, among different tribes, they have different ways of saying basically the same thing, you know, that uh, one must know oneself, one must have a sense of your spirit or your desire, one has to have foundation that's rooted in a community of relationship and responsibility, and that there's a spiritual aspect that guides you as much as an intellectual, you know, towards this... uh, journey, if you will, to, 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 the, to the top of the mountain. And so that, I think, really epitomizes, uh, for me, um, what indigenous education is. And so uh, knowing that and understanding that, we can then, in a sense, begin to build some, in a sense, in, in a contemporary education setting, some, some kinds of curriculum that begin to bring some of these these values, these core values, these core orientations out again uh, among students. And you can use different different uh, uh, subject areas to do this, of course. And, um, you know, and, and, and before I was at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I was a field biologist. So my area is science, but uh, I'm also an artist. I'm also an indigenous person. So what I started to do was create curriculum that integrated these different aspects of myself, which I know was also true of my students, and bring them together in kind of a cohesive learning map, learning process, uh, which we call curriculum. And um, so, I, you know, that's, that's basically that story, that part of the story. I love that story because I think that um, so much of our world is in pain today and primarily because of this fragmentation of who we are. You know, our bodies have become just a vehicle that carries our head, one of my professors said. And, you know, we, we, we live totally disconnected, not only to ourselves, but also to the people around us. And that, you know, this connection also leads to a distancing of the suffering of others. So our world it's in need of healing um, in your book you speak of healing uh, we live in a world with deep scars where one needs only to look around to see the suffering uh, of war the result of war, hunger chronic unemployment can we heal a world without first acknowledging the nature of this wound uh, well definitely you know colonization wounds people very deeply and uh, through generations and so in many ways what has been happening this these past few uh, few years, you know, uh, has been uh, a kind of uh, uh, recognition that we are ha- are and have been traumatized by colonization, uh, an understanding of that process, and I think that we're finally beginning to now move forward into uh, into a new phase of thinking about ourselves in a very different kind of way than. 
than we were conditioned to uh, with regard to uh, our own colonization. And, and so, you know, in earlier days uh, with the boarding school, with uh, the, um, the ways in which uh, Native kids were indoctrinated within schools, uh, to forget their culture, forget their language, to forget their history even. And for a period and also for uh, several generations of Native people, that was their experience of education. We've now, I think, turned a corner, especially with, uh, uh, in 1974, there was a, an act called the Indian Self-Determination Act in which um, Native people were given the right, in a sense, to create their own schools and also to create... Uh, their own forms of education, you know, and so that's that then gave the impetus for many Native educators to begin to think about what and how we could actually create a different way of educating ourselves and our students in, in a way that uh, honored their history, honored their language, honored their traditions, honored their communities. And so that's been a struggle. Uh, it's been a long uh, journey. Uh, it's still a journey that continues uh, in a variety of different kinds of ways. Uh, I call it, at this point in time, uh, the indigenous mind rising, because uh, what I see as I go around uh, all over the world, basically, and, and work with indigenous populations around uh, education as a whole or science education, I'm beginning to see that Many indigenous peoples, many indigenous cultures are moving towards, um, in a sense, uh, you know, honoring their past, uh, really re, uh, recreating or revitalizing their language and their communities, and then also bringing forward uh, education as a tool, not only of decolonizing themselves, but actually making uh, education indigenous once again. And so I think that that's the vision for the future is is the sense that as this process evolves through time among indigenous populations and people, that this is really the goal that indigenous people have for themselves. Uh, it's more than, you know, getting a job and fitting into the system because that was also a phase of Native education. But I think now it's moving, you know, towards this deeper uh, reclaiming and recreating of our indigenous uh, identity, indigenous heritage, you know, through the process of education. And so I know that indigenous scholars, you know, where we find them in the world, are, are very, very much involved with this kind of enterprise these days. So uh, that's my hope, is that, that that's the healing of the wound. And it's not only the healing of the wound, but it now, in a sense, is moving into a phase of... Uh, of revitalization and recreation of, of indigenous culture in a contemporary setting in ways that are appropriate and ways that make sense, okay. but also uh, a renewal, I guess you might say, of indigenous spirituality, indigenous uh, economics, indigenous uh, community, indigenous forms of education, so that we have, in a sense, a way to once again survive and actually even to thrive. Now, of course, you know, the world is in such chaos these days, and, and so, uh, you know, we have climate change, we have uh, wars, we have uh, poverty, we have, uh, you know, the, the struggle of uh, economics, if you will. Uh, but I still, within that context, the indigenous mind is rising, and I think that, uh, especially in the areas of ecology and ecological philosophy, I think that many of the the new ecological uh, academics uh, have 
paid heed and are beginning to build on indigenous-like uh, concepts, you know, within uh, within education and also within uh, uh, within the ecological movement. So I see a lot of hope, you know, at least in that context. Uh, but again, indigenous people have to do a lot of the work for themselves if this if they are also going to be a part of that broader global movement. I guess you might say. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we're coming to the end of the interview, but I wonder if you could just leave us with some um, words of inspiration. What inspires you to continue to struggle against what you just described, all this chaos that surrounds us? Um, what inspires your hope that we can you know, create a different story? What should that new story of who we can become? Well, I think you know, uh, education uh, in its in its best sense has always has to be about uh, visions of a brighter future. And uh, so, my hope, you know, in in the work that I do, I, you know, I am a director of Native American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and I've been in that position for ten years. And so, what I'm doing with the students that I'm working with in in our degree program is helping them think about, you know, that, that sense of who we are, our history, have them understand, you know, the issues in a very deep uh, and, and, and using research in a way, helping them to understand their present uh, situation. But uh, finally, uh, having them uh, create a context in which uh, they can use that kind of education for uh, engaging a vision of the future and that vision of the future, I think, really needs to be about um, uh, a, a reclaiming of indigenous values globally uh, with regard to uh, how we uh, interact with each other, which is, is one kind of ecology. It's social ecology uh, in, in more harmonious and more self-supporting ways or, or uh, mutually supporting ways. Uh, how we engage with our uh, natural environment in uh, in a more uh, supportive and and ecologically sound way, and how we engage uh, with ourselves spiritually, because I think there's also you know part of this issue of of the mo- modern dilemma or the uh, the uh, you know in terms of modernity and also uh, you know the issues of capitalism. Um, uh, you know, as kind of the underpinning of that that modernity, is that we have to begin to create uh, new ways of understanding uh, how we interact with each other around uh, how we uh, develop our forms of economic, our forms of education, our forms of, of community. So right now, I'm I'm really uh, you know exploring um, in my next book. I've written six books, but. Uh, the seventh book is going to be about uh, pedagogy of indigenous community, very much like a look to the mountain in some ways, um, but uh, to take a look at ways in which we begin to work with each other in more harmonious and more direct ways, applying indigenous principles from the past, applying the best ideas from the present, and really beginning to forge a different kind of future. Uh, for our children and for our communities. So my hope is that education can actually become a tool not for indoctrination and for assimilation as it was used in the past for indigenous people, but a tool for um, transformation and for, uh, you know, truly becoming and finding your face and finding your heart and truly becoming uh, complete human beings once again.
That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. How can people access your books? I can be reached at G Kahete, and that's just G C A J E T E at sign A O L dot com. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us and for taking the time to talk with us. Okay, thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Uh, have a great day. That was Dr. Gregory uh, Cayetti. He is the director of the Native American Studies. He's also uh, an author, and his book, Look to the Mountain, is a fantastic uh, and highly recommended book for anyone looking to create transformative change in education or in our communities. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist authored for more information about upcoming events workshops retreats please reach out to sylvierichardson.com until next time remember to be playful to celebrate joy and to allow love in all your co-creations you'll never have to wonder where the groove went the groove is you